The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is Genesis 17, 1 through 27. So I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offsprings after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. King of Kings of people shall come from her. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought from money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we pray, according to Isaiah 55, that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, it says, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so would your word be this morning, that it would not return to you empty, 
but as it says, would accomplish that which you purpose and succeed in the thing for which you sent him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the nice things about expository preaching or preaching passage by passage through books of the Bible is that we get to talk about a lot of topics that we wouldn't necessarily otherwise talk about. And uh, that is certainly the case with the topic before us this morning, which, as you may have picked up on from the scripture reading, is the topic of circumcision. And if I were just selecting things for us to talk about on Sunday morning and just topics that seemed especially, uh, I don't know, urgent and relevant, you know, I'm not sure I'd ever get to this, this topic. Uh, like, hey, guys, I just really felt led to talk about circumcision today. God just really seemed to put that on my heart. Probably not going to happen, right? And that would be very unfortunate because, as we'll see, circumcision is actually an immensely relevant topic with enormous significance for our lives. You know, maybe as uh, Genesis 17 was being read a few moments ago, you were thinking to yourself, some of you, all right, now where is he going to go with this passage, right? Well, don't you worry, because there is quite a bit about ancient Hebrew circumcision that is highly relevant for us and our relationship with God. And plus, as an added bonus, I'm going to give those of you who are parents of young children the opportunity to answer some great questions about human anatomy over lunch today. So you're welcome for that. But again, that's just a bonus. Now, as we'll see, the main idea of this passage is that God establishes circumcision as the sign of his covenant with Abraham. By the way, a covenant is simply a sacred or formal agreement between two parties. So God establishes circumcision as the sign of his covenant with Abraham. Before we do a deep dive into circumcision, though, I'd like to observe a few things from the very beginning of this passage. In Genesis 17, 1 and 2, we read that when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Notice first the way God identifies himself to Abram here. He says, I am God Almighty. That's the English translation of the original Hebrew phrase El Shaddai, a name of God that's used in numerous places throughout the Old Testament. And this is actually the very first time that El Shaddai is used in the Bible. El is a, a very general term that simply refers to God, while Shaddai emphasizes the idea of God's power. So when you put the two together, you get God the all-powerful one, or God the mighty one. Notice we see here, God Almighty. It's as though God's reminding Abraham who, if you remember, was waiting for God to fulfill his promises and likely being tempted to doubt those promises, that God's more than able to keep the promises he's made. He's powerful enough to enable Abram's wife Sarai to conceive, even though she's 89 years old at this point. 
and thereby give Abram descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Just like God said he would back in chapter 15. Uh, One commentator describes God's message to Abram in this way. It's as if God's saying, I'm able to fulfill the awesome hopes that I've set before you of a people and a land. There's no need to let go of the promise because of your old age. There's no need to succumb to passive desperation. There's no need to scale down the promise to match your puny thoughts. No need to resort to fleshly expedience. No need of trying to fulfill the promise in any second-rate way. Everything, all your life, all your future, lies in this. I am Shaddai, God Almighty. And similarly, how critical is it for us to believe in an almighty God in the midst of whatever challenges that we might be facing in life? In the midst of financial challenges, workplace difficulties, marital conflict, struggles with addiction, parenting challenges, anxiety about the future, and any other sufferings or hardships that we face, will we believe that the God we serve really is almighty? You know, maybe God needs to correct just a bit your your small view of him, just as he does with Abram here in this passage. And then after identifying himself as El Shaddai, God tells Abram to walk before me and be blameless. In other words, Abram's faith needs to be an obedient faith, a genuine faith that's, that's manifested in obedience. And then after Abram falls on his face in reverence, God reaffirms his covenant with Abram and changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Look at verses 3 through 6. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Now, you have to understand that in the ancient Near Eastern world, that a person's name was incredibly significant and considered to be bound up with just the very essence of who that person was. And so by changing Abram's name to Abraham, God's communicating in a very powerful way what Abram would become. His original name, Abram, means exalted father and probably referred not to Abram himself, but to Abram's father, Terah. So Abram was understood to be someone not who was an exalted father, but someone who had an exalted father. Kind of sounds a little conceited when you think about it for Terah to name his son exalted father. But I don't know, I guess everyone else in the family just went along with it. By the way, for any future fathers here, I probably would not recommend naming your child exalted father. Just might not go over quite as well with your wife as you might be thinking. Um, But uh, nevertheless, that's what Tara does here. 
However, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And this time, the word father does refer to Abraham. He would become the father of a multitude of people, and even, as verse 5 says, a multitude of nations. So how's that for a reminder of God's promise? Every time Abraham's called by his new name, he can be reminded all over again of God's promise with him. And of course, this promise would ultimately be fulfilled, not just biologically, but also spiritually. The New Testament teaches us in Galatians 3.29 that all of those who put their trust in Jesus to rescue them uh, from their sins become spiritual offspring of Abraham. So you know that great multitude of, of people and nations that are gathered around the throne of Jesus in Revelation and, and worshiping Jesus for all eternity? That's the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. As his new name declares, he'll indeed be the father of a vast multitude. And that brings us to the moment that we've all been waiting for, an in-depth look at circumcision in all of its richness and relevance. Not only does God give Abraham a new name as a reminder of his covenant, he also establishes circumcision as the sign of this covenant. Verses 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and who, he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So notice that this sign is something not just for Abraham, but also for all of his male descendants. It would be repeated as a requirement in the law of Moses and practiced relatively faithfully uh, throughout Israel's subsequent generations. And uh, you might be wondering, like, why, what in the world? Like, why would God command something like this? I mean, surely there are plenty of other physical alterations that, that God could have commanded. So why not just command, like, a, I don't know, a small tattoo on the shoulder or you know, maybe clipping off the tip of an earlobe or something like that. I mean, does it really have to involve like making cuts to those kinds of things? Like, why, you know? Well, there's actually, I'm, I'm very glad you all asked that question. There's actually a, a great reason why God establishes circumcision specifically as the sign of the covenant. And in fact, there are two reasons. First of all, Cutting away the foreskin of the male reproductive organ is intended to signify the need all of us have for the sin within our hearts to be cut away. And according to the Bible, the sin within our hearts 
is passed down from one generation to the next. Each generation inherits a sinful nature from the previous generation. And so that's why the cut takes place on the organ responsible for producing subsequent generations. So not only Abraham, but also all of the generations that would come from him needed to have the sin cut away from their hearts. So that's one reason why the cut couldn't just be on an earlobe or something like that. In addition, the nature of circumcision is intended to focus attention on the offspring of Abraham, through whom God had promised blessing would come to the entire world. And if you remember back to Genesis 12, verse 3, God had told Abraham that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that blessing, of course, would come through one descendant of Abraham in particular, the Lord Jesus Christ. According to Galatians 3.16, Jesus is the quintessential offspring of Abraham. And so, the sign of the covenant is applied where it's applied on the body in order to direct our attention not to Abraham himself, but to his offspring, Jesus, the one who would eventually come from Abraham and through whom the blessings of God's covenant with Abraham would flow to the entire world. You see, I told you, isn't the expository teaching great? Right? This is incredible. So just as God had established the rainbow as uh, what he called the sign of his covenant with Noah in Genesis 9, and just as he later established the Sabbath as what he'd call the sign of his covenant with the Israelites in Exodus 31, God here establishes circumcision as the sign of his covenant with Abraham. So I guess God just likes signs, and uh, he knows that we need them. And when you think about the nature of a sign, it's important to distinguish between the sign itself and the reality that the sign symbolizes. Right? For example, think about the sign of a wedding ring. Right? A wedding ring itself isn't marriage, nor does wearing a wedding ring automatically make a person married. No, instead, a wedding ring is just a sign of marriage. And the ring would be an empty and meaningless sign if the person wearing it wasn't married. Similarly, as we see in the Bible, the sign of circumcision was an empty and meaningless sign if it wasn't accompanied by something internal. In order for external circumcision to have any meaning or value, it had to be accompanied by internal circumcision. That's why we find several commands in the Old Testament for the Israelites to circumcise their hearts. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, for example, God tells the Israelites, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Also, in Jeremiah 4, 4, God says to a particularly rebellious generation of Israelites, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. 
So circumcision needed to be not only external, but also internal. And that's a principle that applies not only to the Israelites, but also to us. There has to be a good balance in the Christian life between the external and the internal. Asking whether the external or internal is more important is kind of like asking which leg you need more to walk. You need both of them. Some of you, uh, perhaps those who have been Christians longer, are really good at the external habits of religious devotion. You've gotten to the point where it's relatively natural uh, for you to do certain things. Like, you don't really have to decide each Sunday whether or not you're going to come to church. Instead, it's a pretty habituated behavior by this point. Like, unless you're sick or traveling or something like that, you're here. You probably also established the habit of having a daily devotional time where you set aside some time each day to read the Bible and, and pray on your own. And perhaps you've also established the habit of giving a set amount of money at some regular interval. So these are all great habits to have, but sometimes you need to take a step back and ask yourself, am I just going through the motions here? Maybe all of these things used to be genuine expressions of love for God, but have they become, to any degree, something less than that? Have they gradually degenerated into empty religious observances? Don't let yourself put your Christian life on autopilot. Yet there's also a ditch on the other side of the road as well. There are probably others here this morning, perhaps those who are younger in the faith, who are experiencing wonderful things internally. Like you are so excited about Jesus. You marvel at his grace every single day. And you're, you're just amazed at who he is. So amazed that you want to tell everyone you encounter all about Jesus and, and what he's done for you. First of all, praise God for that. Maybe pray right now that, that you would never lose that sense of awe and amazement at the gospel. But also be aware that your internal love for the Lord and, and your joy in what he's done for you needs to show up in your life in practical ways. You need to be involved in church consistently, for example, and hopefully uh, a community group or something similar. Uh, you should also be setting aside a portion of time each day. Um, usually it works best at the same time every day to to read scripture and to pray on your own. You should be regularly practicing good financial stewardship and honoring God with your wealth. You should be regularly finding ways to serve the people around you, both here at the church as well as out in the community through acts of mercy. Kind of like the, you know, the Finleyville Food Pantry that we're doing next month or something like that. And you should be orienting your entire life around the missionary calling that God's given us of reaching people with the gospel. 
So these are all things that those of us who are Christians are called to do. And by the way, I've placed a stack of these um, oversized bookmarks that we had printed up that detail 10 habits of a healthy Christian. They, including a few of the habits that I've listed here uh, this morning, as well as some additional habits. So you are very welcome to pick one up if you desire on your way out. Because the Bible is very clear in James 2.17 that faith without works is dead. The internal without the external is meaningless. Similarly, in Ephesians 2.8-10, through 10, Paul explains that even though we're not saved by good works, he says that we're still saved for good works. It's just another way of saying that internal faith needs to manifest itself in external obedience. So ask yourself, which category are you closer to? Are you more in danger of just going through the motions of the Christian life? Or are you more in danger of neglecting the acts of obedience that God calls us to practice? And we see the need for this balance between the internal and external, even back in the Old Testament, as God established external circumcision as the sign of the covenant, but also called his people to an internal circumcision, a circumcision of Yet, strictly speaking, that circumcision of the heart was never truly possible in the Old Testament. God told the Israelites to circumcise their hearts, but ultimately, they couldn't. They weren't capable of bringing about within themselves the kind of heart change that was necessary to consistently walk in closeness with God. That's why God told them that eventually he himself would have to circumcise their hearts for them. As he predicts through Moses in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, speaking about what God will do after the Israelites have rebelled, it says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So instead of telling them to circumcise their hearts, God says he is going to circumcise their hearts. God also declares in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He also tells his people in Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then moving forward to the New Testament and returning 
specifically to the language of circumcision. Paul explains to us in Romans 2, 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter of the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. So true circumcision is not only a matter of the heart, as we've already seen in previous verses, but it also happens how? By the Spirit, Paul says. Only the Holy Spirit can circumcise our hearts. It's a supernatural work that he has to do. And that's the only kind of circumcision that matters now. Physical circumcision was only a temporary sign for Abraham and his biological male descendants in the Old Testament that was intended to point forward in time to something much greater. And that greater reality is the circumcision that we receive by Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul writes in Colossians 2.11, speaking of Jesus, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So again, physical circumcision was only a temporary sign that pointed forward in time to what Jesus would accomplish in our hearts. Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Moving ahead a couple of verses in Colossians 2, Paul explains it in more detail. He writes in verses 13 and 14, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, there's a lot in these verses, but just notice how we are rescued from what Paul calls our uncircumcision. That is, from our sinful nature. And that sinful nature, uh, by the way, doesn't stay on the inside, but leads us to commit what Paul refers to as trespasses, or sins against God, for which we need to be forgiven. That's what Paul says. And so we actually have two problems. A sinful heart that needs to be changed, and growing out of that sinful heart, a sinful lifestyle for which we need to be forgiven. Paul says it's as if we owed a massive debt to God's justice. Basically, our sins deserve hell. But what did Jesus do to rescue us? Paul says that Jesus took that record of debt that stood against us and nailed it to the cross. The cross is the key to it all. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, taking on himself 
the judgment that we deserve. So he paid, using the analogy Paul uses, he paid the debt that we owed. He then resurrected from the dead so that Jesus is now able, through the Holy Spirit, to change our sinful hearts and make us into new people. That's the circumcision we so desperately need. A spiritual circumcision in which Jesus transforms us from the inside out. To understand that being saved from your sin and, and gaining confidence of spending eternity with God in heaven isn't about external religious observances, but rather about the internal change of your heart. Has your heart changed? As Paul writes in Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Have you experienced an internal change of your heart that's so radical that you can accurately be described as a new creation, a totally new person. See, friends, trying to make various changes in our lives apart from Jesus is a futile endeavor. Our sinful nature just goes too deep. It's beyond our ability to remedy we might be able to make a few cosmetic changes on the surface here and there, but we can't change our hearts. The only kind of changes we can make are those that basically amount to putting a Band-Aid on cancer. Understand that the sin in your heart is like cancer, and a Band-Aid won't fix it. You need Jesus to change your heart. You don't just need a fresh start at life or a second chance to prove yourself or to turn over a new leaf or get a new code of personal ethics or a new set of friends. And you don't just need to leave behind a few bad habits and pick up a few good habits. No, you need your uncircumcised heart to be circumcised. You need your rebellious nature that represents the very core of who you are, the Bible says, to be changed. And that change is only possible through Jesus. Have you experienced that change? Like, have you put your trust in Jesus and, and cried out to him to deliver you from your sins and experienced the change of heart that he offers? Just to give you a few examples of what that looks like, some signs of a changed heart, I'd say, first of all, it's manifested in a genuine love for God. A genuine love for God, where the reason you do what you do isn't because you're trying to impress God or earn a right standing with God, but simply because you love Him and you desire to bring joy to His heart. To put it in the simplest of terms, making God happy makes you happy. Also, another sign of a changed heart is a desire for God. You're no longer 
treating God like a, a means to an end, like a cosmic vending machine that you value only because of the earthly blessings you think he'll dispense to you. Instead, your desire is for God himself. Although you might appreciate and enjoy his earthly blessings, your interest reaches far beyond the gifts to the giver of the gifts. You long for more of God. As the psalmist says to God in Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? This earth has nothing I desire besides you. That's the cry of your heart. A third sign of a changed heart is sensitivity to sin in your life. You regularly uh, discover pockets of sin in your life and are genuinely grieved over that sin, not just because of its consequences, but because you know it displeases God and are therefore led to turn away from your sin and start honoring God in that area of your life. As 1 John 1, 8 through 10 tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, and that would be as a style of life. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. <laughs> We're not saved. I guess you could say it this way. A heart that's been changed with respect to God is also a heart that's been changed with respect to sin. Instead of delighting in sin, you mourn over sin. Fourth, if your heart's been changed, there should also be a love in your heart for fellow Christians. If you think that you're too good for other Christians who are genuinely trying to live for the Lord, and you find being around them to be distasteful, or undesirable, that may very well be an indication of an uncircumcised heart. We read in 1 John 2, verses 9 and 10, that whoever says he is in the light, that he's a Christian, and hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother, that is his Christian brother, abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. We then read further down in verse 19, they went out from us, talking about people who had departed from the church, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. You know, if you have a changed heart, just the general assumption of the Bible is that you'll have at least some desire for fellowship and meaningful involvement in a local church. And if you don't have at least some desire for that kind of connection to other Christians, then I'm not saying conclusively that you're not a Christian, but I would definitely encourage you to examine your heart. And then finally, a fifth sign of a changed heart is a passion to see God glorified in the world. 
And I'm specifically talking about seeing him glorified as more people come to know him. As the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon put it quite bluntly (laughs) when he wrote, Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Wow. If your heart's been changed, then I would think you would desire that other people experience the grace of God that you've experienced. And even beyond that, that God would receive more of the worship and the glory that he so deserves. So let me encourage you with the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, where he tells his readers, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, he writes. Do you show signs of a circumcised heart? A heart that's been changed by Jesus. Not your neighbor, not the person sitting next to you in your pew, not your family member back home, but you. Do you show signs that Jesus has changed your heart?